Hey everybody, Rob North here from the Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades podcast. Just saying that if you like what we do and you'd like to support us financially and get access to exclusive content, you can go to patreon.com slash trrpod. As always, hold fast and on with the show. Kamchatka as the Andy Dick of the Imperial Russian fleet. And, I just have flashbacks to like, you know, getting alcohol poisoning in a field in high school from uh, Kamchatka. <laughs> well, okay, so my, my question was, do you think I made the right comparison? I mean, can we think of anybody else that we could compare the Kamchatka to? Um, I, I already made the, the Ned and Jimbo South Park reference. Yeah, there yeah, was that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was the boy that cried torpedo. Mm-hmm. Well, they, hit a, they hit a log. <laughs> it, it, I mean, just the, the, the endless screw-ups, the hoist upon thine own petard nature of... Mr. Bean? Uh, I mean, I guess, yeah. But then I mean, again, Mr. Bean never really caused panic in people, just confusion. <laughs> that's true. This is true. Actually, if you want to talk causing confusion, that might actually be an apt comparison. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. But, uh, yeah, speaking of uh, causing panic and confusion, These Rogues and Renegades is back, everybody. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. And I am Michael Ernett. And sadly, we are not joined uh, today by Kyle Graper. We're, uh, we're recording both parts of this series in one, uh, in one go. Kyle couldn't join yes. us today. But isn't that because he's uh, joined the radiator in the basement? I'd rather not talk about it. Mm. I'd rather not talk about it. Yes, we talk about that. That's what that's what's known as People's Exhibit A. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. So, uh, yeah, Kyle will be joining us next time, uh, as we said before, for the Dan Sickle series that is coming up. The series we were originally supposed to do, but we had some illness issues, some scheduling issues. Uh, so we decided to uh, swap to do uh, this series first, uh, which is my uh, mandate. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Dan and, Sickles uh, episode uh, yeah. kind of got away from us. There's a, the, there's a lot of meat there. The, well, and, the Dan, and, and by the, the way, shout out to my brother Jim, who's out yes. saving lives tonight. Yes, of course. Yeah, and that's and another that's, one we couldn't get Jim around, and he's yeah. a very important part of that, and we want to get and, him in. Yeah, we, uh, Jim will definitely have a lot to contribute to the Dan Sickles series, and we didn't want to proceed with that series without him. Um, so, yeah, so next time it will be uh, Mike's, uh, Mike's Mandate with the Dan Sickles series. So that's just an explanation of why, if you were listening to our series on Ian, our, our episode on Ian Fleming, and you were expecting Dan Sickles to come next, why this may uh, have been a, a little switcheroo. So our apologies on that, but we will uh, we will do our best to get the Dan Sickles series out to you as soon as possible. Um, and as I said, the uh, topic today is part two of the story of the Russian 2nd Pacific Squadron. Uh, definitely go listen to part one for... Some background information as to some more background information as to what was happening, uh, what what how the squadron got constituted, how they got started, and the early troubles and shenanigans they had. There will be lots of laughs, and it won't be because of anything that any jokes that we've made. Nope. We I mean we barely have to. All we have to do is just tell the facts. Yeah, we've basically done ten thousand miles of an eighteen thousand or eighteen thousand mile journey, and it's just like like we said, there was 
maybe one good decision. Yes, but but to sum it up, uh, the the first and spoiler alert only voyage of the Second Pacific Squadron of the Imperial Russian Navy was a seven and a half month, eighteen thousand mile odyssey of hijinks, goof 'em ups, international incidents, and uh, I believe I referred to it before as a general cavalcade of dumb shit shenanigans. Uh, that only gets wilder when you realize that all of the stuff they dealt with was on their way to fight the battle they were supposed to fight. And uh, that's why, uh, again, you realize why this great floating disaster quite literally drove some of the men involved insane. Um, Once again, I'd like to just go over our sources for this series. We have uh, The Tsar's Last Armada, The Epic Voyage to the Battle of Tsushima by Konstantin Pleshikov. We have The Rising Sun and The Tumbling Bear. Tumbling Bear is a great name for a pub, by the way. Uh, anyone out there who might be getting into the business in five or six years when bars are actually a thing again. Yeah, before they, uh, they stop yeah. being you know, illegal. But uh, yeah, the, the Rising Sun and the Tumbling Bear, uh, Military History of the Russo-Japanese War by Richard Connaughton, or Connaughton, I don't know. Never heard the man's name spoken. Um, we also have the Russian... Sorry, Rich, if yeah. you're listening. Sorry, Rick. Um, the, uh, the Russians at Sea, A History of the Russian Navy by David Woodward. Tsushima 1905, Death of a Russian Fleet by Mark Lourdes. And again, a major shout-out to uh, YouTuber Drakinafel, who, he, this guy, he's out of the UK. This dude's presentation of naval history is incredible. The amount of content that he puts out, the detail in it, his dedication to it, is second to none. If you are a fan of naval history at all, or even just history in general, definitely go on YouTube and check him out. That's Drakinafel, spelled D-R-A-C-H... I-N-I-F-E-L. Well, looks like Kyle got a hold of some of the dog toys down in the basement. <laughs> He's squeaking in Morse code. <laughs> Feed me. I'll, I'll be right back. I'll be right back. Hang on, hang on. So, uh, gentlemen, if there are no other points of order, shall we proceed with part two of our story? No, I mean, I guess the dog's taking over for uh, for Kyle. But other than that, yeah. I think it's all, all uh, in a word, ship shape. <laughs> okay, I was gonna say it's gonna. I, okay, I was gonna say it's gonna be bad when we're gonna have to sit Kyle down and tell him he's fired for the podcast in favor of the dog. But Chris, we have to have a talk. <laughs> so at the bring height, your playbook. Bring your playbook. So at the height, the dog thought it was fucking yeah. funny. Yeah, you think it's easy now, you son of a bitch. <laughs> so at the height of the Russo-Japanese War in late 1904, the Second Pacific Squadron of the Russian fleet had been dispatched to sail all the way from the Baltic Sea to the Far East, all the way around Africa, to reinforce Russia's assets in their war against the Japanese. Under the leadership of the harried and frustrated Admiral Zinovi Petrovich Rasisvensky, the the fleet of 42 warships and auxiliaries had fired on multiple civilian ships and each other, nearly caused a series of major international incidents and taking themselves to the brink of war with several of the world's major powers. An endless series of collisions, uh, mishaps, and panics had plagued the squadron, particularly from the hapless repair ship Kamchatka, who we referred to at the beginning, and the fleet seemed like it was destined to not make it to actually fight the war it was supposed to help win. I like the Kamchatka's other name. <laughs> the, uh, the illicit slut. Yeah. The um. What was the illicit slut or it was? I just have the cabin boy joke. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the dirty the, whore. The, yeah. <laughs> the filthy whore. <laughs> yes. The Kamchatka was called the lecherous slut by Rossesvansky. Lecherous. There's there's a certain amount of panache in yeah. lecherous. Uh, however, the squadron was approaching a rendezvous point at Madagascar, where they would meet up with reinforcements and get some much needed rest and repairs. What could possibly go wrong? Turns out, quite a lot. Uh, well, for, for, when your repair ship is the 
from Pachka. Yeah. <laughs> well, for starters, on uh, January 2nd, 1905, right before the 2nd Pacific Squadron arrived in Madagascar, Port Arthur, the main base for the Russians in the Far East, finally fell to a Japanese siege, which did little to help the morale situation. Uh, with the low morale came the intense need for the men to go ashore, and on the Madagascar main, uh, on the Madagascar lane, mainland and the island of Nasi Bay. Uh, they did just that, much to the consternation of the local French governors who weren't exactly thrilled about a couple tens of thousands of Russian sailors along with a bunch of heavily armed warships showing up and going, we're just going to chill here for a while if that's okay. Uh, during the course of these series of shore excursions, the Russian sailors set about collecting three main things. Exotic animals, STDs, and drugs. Uh, I mean, it's not all that different from any other shore leave. This is all No, pretty, I, mean, I mean, you can attest to that, Mike. It's pretty right, cut it's, and dry. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, well, the drugs, not so much. Not in, not in my era. Mm. I, I do have there a, was a lot of booze, but man, the drugs, not so much. I do have a decent... Like, I, I have a, a fairly, uh, fairly solid list of all the animals that were brought back. Um, Please. Uh, the most popular was, uh, was birds. Mm-hmm. Quite a few birds. Um, Pretty easy to acquire. Fairly cheap, one would expect. Mind you, that uh, the bulk of these animals were just wild animals that they just got and kept. Yeah, they just like, trapped them and picked them up. Yeah, it's it's highly uncommon that a lot of these guys would, would you know buy a bird whenever you can just get drunk and you know try and steal one. Yep. Um, dogs came in second, followed closely by cats. Uh, there was one crocodile. Yep. Uh, there was a parrot <laughs> there that was... learned to swear. Well, there was one crocodile on board the Kinaz Suvorov, the flagship. There were multiple crocodiles on across the fleet. Oh, there, one grown crocodile. Yes. I, I, a lot I, of them were, were babies, but also it turns out crocodiles grow pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the largest one was over six feet in length. Yep. Um, and a, no, a number of venomous snakes. Uh, one uh, actually coiled itself around, uh, around one of the main guns and bit an officer who subsequently died. Died. It was the... Um, <laughs> I had this uh, noted. It, it was actually the um, the first lieutenant of the battleship Sisoy Veliki. Mm. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the the flagship uh, soon became overrun with chameleons. Yep, <laughs> they but, had uh, a, they had a particular chameleon problem. Yeah, but uh, the good news is uh, most of the ships had fewer rats because a bunch of dudes just went and stole feral cats. Yes. Um. Well. It, well, the rats would. That's the thing. Is at the very beginning, and then the. The bigger rats survived and started fighting off the cats, mm-hmm. which meant that the rats once again started propagating. It, and once, the longer they stayed in Port of Madagascar, the more rats there were. And, and it's not like there were pet stores in Madagascar. These were either stray animals that people were picking yeah. up or wild animals. So they weren't trained in any way, so they would just kind of be wandering around the ship, yeah. eating rats, getting into food stores. Thank you, Vinny. Just genuine, generally squeaking things. Yeah. <laughs> but the, you um, know there was one guy in the engine room that said, I want the horse like my grandmama, Catherine. <laughs> oh, there it God, is. No. We, we could only do a Russian subject for so long without mentioning Catherine the Great. Of there was one horse, but it belonged to the court. <laughs> <laughs> Sent on a dispatch vessel from St. Petersburg. <laughs> Ooh, new supplies. I wonder what's here. Oh, oh boy. That was, that was the whole plot of 300, too, yeah. though. Yeah, they talk about their secret weapon. Spoiler alert, at the end of the movie, it's just a horse. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like a 25-second scene with a horse in it. Um, so in addition to the crocodiles, the chameleons, the parrots, poisonous snakes, there were also 
uh, many dozens of monkeys and lemurs, mm-hmm. and uh, several young to adolescent lions. <laughs> Who the fuck brings a lion on board a ship? Like, I, I, I bet you his name was Joe. That like it, <laughs> just the rush. Joseph. Oh my god! Joseph. Yes, Joseph. Joseph exotic. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's the thing. So you had that. Yeah, you had this snake that fatally bit the the first lieutenant of the Sisoy Valiki. And that's the thing is, given the Sisoy Valiki's average gunnery skills, one could argue that the addition of a large venomous serpent increased her offensive power significantly. <laughs> um. And of, yeah, and you mentioned one of the talking parrots. At least killed a guy. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so one of the talking parrots was given to Rossesvensky himself, and it lived in his cabin in the ward room, uh, and it learned to mimic his colorful strings of Russian curses and did have a tendency to shout out the insulting nicknames he had for many of his officers right in front of those officers. Now, whether they made a connection that it was them the parrot was talking about, I don't know. Probably. Yeah. You would, one would think. I mean, yeah. the bird didn't even spend that much time around it. Yeah. Like, the voyage wasn't that long. <laughs> like, <laughs> within a matter of days, the bird is already swearing. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you mentioned that the flagship, the Kinez Suvorov, became overrun by chameleons, which, of course, proved to be quite difficult to track down when they escaped. <laughs> right. It's... <laughs> Which, uh, how are it you going to find chameleons it? chameleons are pretty good at going gray. Yeah. <laughs> Just... <laughs> it's oh, weirdly Lord. shaped shell. And, and what do all of these exotic animals bear? Disease. Disease. <laughs> um, nice. Well, that's the thing is the Aurora in particular, and we talked about the Aurora being oh, the friendly God, fire I feel magnet. Bad for this boat. The, being the friendly fire magnet of the Russian fleet. Uh, was over was in particular overrun with a large collection of predatory animals, and the crew almost placed itself in a state of restive mutiny, stating that they were too scared to go to sleep or to travel to many of the ship's passageways, as there were quite a few monkeys, lions, and a crocodile roaming the ship looking for something to snack on. Well, I mean, I, I gotta I gotta be honest with you. when it comes to the Aurora, I can't blame that crew. I mean, I don't know. I'm not saying that they were the best sailors out there. But or if that... there are true victims in this <laughs> yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty hard whenever not only are you you just lousy with snakes, yeah. that you're also constantly being bombarded by the other ships that you're sailing yeah. with. Yeah. By um, your own crew, right. your own fleet. Now, in addition to all the, land, uh, all the birds and the land-based animals, the Sea Life Collection began in earnest uh, as well when the refrigeration unit on the store ship Esperanz broke down, and all the meat on board had to be thrown overboard, attracting quite the varied array of sharks. Um, And it's also said that when some of the land animals, when the crew finally got their hands on some of the animals that had been annoying them, right into the sea Mm -hmm. to have the sharks deal with them. Um, And have you you seen the aerial pictures of the coast of Madagascar? mm We're not talking about small sharks. We're not talking about little tiny, you know, the the little tiny sand sharks. heads, great whites. Yeah, large tiger great whites. Uh, tiger sharks. Do they live in that part of the world? They have mako yeah. sharks. Yeah, makos. Yeah, like, makos. Yeah. They have black tips. I mean, they have pretty every pretty much every migratory shark goes past Madagascar, mm-hmm. or at least lives in those latitudes. You know, it's, right. So, in addition to becoming the world's largest seaborne zoo, uh, the fleet had to deal with a laundry list of STDs contracted by the Russian sailors in port, uh, which strained the medical staff to the breaking point as they were already dealing with outbreaks of various tropical diseases like malaria, dysentery, and typhoid, as well as a massive increase in the number of respiratory ailments among the crews, which was due to the extra uh, humidity combined with the tons of coal dust in the air aboard the ship's 
thanks to the extra loads of coal that were being stored anywhere that there was space to extend the range between refueling stops. Well, hey, to be fair, they threw 150 tons overboard. Uh, well, well, no, they tried, and but then, they repl- they promptly replaced that with lions. Well, no, well, no, they replaced 150 tons of bad coal with the guys who actually aren't shoveling coal into the boilers. If they're shirking, throw them overboard, and then the Kamchatka was able to maintain speed after that. Go figure. Um, the uh, these respiratory attacks would end up killing well over a hundred of the fleet sailors and incapacitating hundreds more due to everyone's throats and lungs being coated in thick black gunk. Everybody got a case of the black spit. It was bad. Uh, Whilst the long list of problems continued to affect the fleet, many of the officers seemed blissfully unaware, uh, which was likely a result of the roaring trade being done in Madagascar's ports in high-grade narcotics. Uh, One officer had purchased a crate of 2,000 cigarettes to share out with his fellow officers, but it turns out that all of them had been filled with opium. Uh, hey, on today's market, that would yeah. be a deal. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the yeah, thing I mean, is, it was cheap. How much did he pay? <laughs> right. <laughs> did he, that, that'll that that will settle the debate of yeah. whether or not he knows if he was buying cigarettes. <laughs> uh, oops, it's opium. <laughs> but and 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 most of these were smoked before they could be confiscated. Uh, needless to say, all of these officers and senior enlisted men being off their tits did little to assist in an already tenuous environment of discipline. Do you think he smoked the first one and went? Well, that really, right. I, I just wanted a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I'm like, <laughs> ooh, a dragon. Let's chase it. <laughs> it's so the strain on Rosasvensky's command of this cavalcade of disasters finally began to tell on the poor man, and he began to alternate between falling seriously physically ill, confining himself to his cabin, falling or, and falling into bouts of deep melancholy. And he would occasionally fly into fits of rage that would get so bad he would begin to roll around on the deck tearing at his uniform, spitting curses, and foaming at the mouth. His health would improve by the end of the fleet's time in Madagascar, but for the remainder of the voyage, he would still be seen walking the passageways, muttering and cursing to himself, and arguing with people that weren't there. All that's fair. Uh, Yes. I mean, the man has now officially been driven to a psychotic break. Um, Now, spirits were raised when a group of supply ships arrived, bearing fresh supplies and a full proper load of ammo for the fleet. However, one of the ammo ships, the Artouche, was found to have, instead of uh, badly needed shells, a cargo of 12,000 pairs of fur-lined winter boots and an equal number of winter coats. Exactly what the fleet needs in its current subtropical environment. Yeah. I, as you know, I I always wear uh, wore my pea coat when we went to Miami. Is that the opposite of the white dude who always wears shorts in winter? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. the Pittsburgh man. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now, Rossesvensky finally decided to enforce a little discipline while at the same time dealing with one of the fleet's chronic problems by ordering a fleet-wide rat-killing contest. Now, the 2nd Pacific Squadron at this time had been overrun with rats, which were getting into the food supplies, severing electrical wires, and generally nibbling little bits off of the bodies of sleeping sailors. The hunt was taken to with great enthusiasm, however, and had a solid effect on the number of rats plaguing the fleet, but also had the unintended consequence of pushing an already strained medical system even further with dozens of accidental stabbings, slashings, blunt force trauma, and gunshot wounds. Uh, Reports of questionable accuracy, admittedly, from the squadron stated that over 100,000 rats and seven sailors were killed during the course of these hunts. That's a pretty that's a pretty resounding victory. I mean, it's better than the the Great Emo War. Emu War, excuse me. The Great Emo War is very, very different. Mm. Um, (laughs) I'm thinking the theme to this whole thing is... 
um, what was that word? Uh, what was that phrase that you used? Questionable accuracy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean that. Yeah, that's that's true on many different levels to mm. to this story. Um, and of course, whilst in port at Madagascar, the big metal albatross around the Russian fleet's neck, the Kamchatka, continued to make her presence felt when a salute was fired throughout the fleet to honor a lieutenant that had died of some tropical disease or another. Uh, and whilst all the other ships had the presence of mind to load a blank shell, the Kamchatka decided to just go ahead and use a live round, which she promptly used to finally hit something, the starboard bow of the cruiser Aurora, which was getting a little sick of being the fleet's friendly fire punching bag. Uh, a week or so later, while still the, whilst the fleet was still at anchor, the Kamchatka signaled that they were sinking. <laughs> uh, and whilst the cheers and rejoicing uh, erupted throughout the fleet, it was found that the problem was merely just a cracked steam pipe in the engine room, a fairly easy fix considering that she was the fleet's repair ship, and the celebrations of her doom soon died down. Yeah, but that had to be a morale killer. How it's you, not sinking. How do you not <laughs> sink this vessel? Uh, yeah, how, how do you not? Well, for all we know, they tried, they just couldn't hit the fucking thing. Yeah. So, on the 1st of February, a sailor from the Kamchatka grabbed two life belts, jumped into the water, and began to swim for the beach. A searchlight was fixed on him, and he was hauled out of the water and on board the flagship. Uh, when asked by a disciplinary committee of officers just what he thought he was doing, he replied, quote, I was tired of being on board. I could endure it no longer, and I wanted to go on shore. The officers conducting the interview made note that they quite understood his feelings and declined to pursue serious disciplinary action, which was quite unlike the Russian Navy at the time. Uh, religious mania began to rear its ugly head at this time as well, with several doomsayer and apocalyptic cults beginning to emerge, offshoots of groups that were already present throughout Russia at this time. Uh... The bosun of one of the battleships took to traveling around the fleet in a boat, half-dressed, climbing on board various vessels, grabbing men and shaking them by the shoulders, regardless of rank, and asking them, with a very intense look in his eye, if they feared death. There's something, something's got to be great for morale. One of those things has to be just a half-naked sailor traveling between ships, just asking if you feared death. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Here's the, here's the thing. I mean, what just I I I've been re, when I was researching this story, I kept stopping to try to get in touch with what must have go, been going through Rosasvensky's head. Just like how many times did he just go, "Oh, come on. What now?" How did they uh, like, uh, the fact that they are still going on is just absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah, they didn't give up. I mean, points for persistence, I suppose. But then again, if you just didn't decide he try didn't well we'll he, get to that yeah. we'll get to that it's, it's, it's not that he tried well it's yeah. not that he tried to turn the fleet around but he eventually had a moment where he just went eh, i'm done uh, so rossesvenski had spent large parts of the voyage trying to get his gunners to learn to shoot in a way that approximated making the shells go straight uh, and where you wanted them to go but with ammunition having been so limited establishing a useful gunnery training regime had been impossible now the recent partial ammo resupply did allow him to arrange a limited series of gunnery practices uh, now, none of the destroyers scored any hits on a stationary target at close range. Of the fleet's seven present battleships, one did manage to score a hit with her main 12-inch battery, directly on the ship towing the target. Now, fortunately for those lucky sailors, 
the massive shell in question ended up being a dud, and though it smashed a sizable hole in the side of the tow vessel and came to rest in her engine room, it failed to explode. Uh, the destroyers were then ordered to conduct a practice torpedo attack in line abreast formation, everybody all in a line heading in the same direction, and promptly scattered in all directions. Now, once they were wrangled back into formation, the launches occurred. Uh, of the seven torpedoes fired, one jammed, three went wildly off course, two of them motored along towards their target at about a mile an hour, but uh, missed their target, obviously. And the last one managed to travel in a wide circle right back into the formation of destroyers, causing them to once again scatter. However, much as the pattern has been established, nobody was hit. Even the torpedoes have terrible aim. Yeah. <laughs> All you do is just point and hope. Yeah. Um, now, the friendly fire magnet cruiser Aurora managed to display the only example of good naval skill and discipline when she hosted a race between all of her ship's boats. And contrary to all of the fleet's previous activities, none of them sank, none of them shot at each other, and they all made it safely back to their mother vessel. A resounding success. Finally. <laughs> I thought yeah, I thought you were going to say that she showed discipline by attempting to sail into one of the torpedoes because at that point, that's what I'd be doing. Right. <laughs> I'm surprised any of the boats came back. Yeah. Just, <laughs> hit the finish line and just keep going. Just heading right just heading right to shore, hoping the sailors can blend in uh, in Madagascar. And their heavy wool coats. Mm, yes, and winter boots. Mm -hmm. uh, finally, after what was supposed to be a week in Madagascar, but ended up being... Over two months. Well, that's what happens whenever you, you stop for shore leave. It's yeah. somebody that, that dabbles in the opium trade. <laughs> and everybody goes nuts and starts shirtlessly asking people if they're afraid to die. Like, Don't make too big a thing about the shirtless thing, though. It, it, the shirtless thing, it, it's not uncommon he didn't have pants either the, yeah well yeah he was yeah just, the, the pantsless thing would have been a would have been a giveaway I mean, but the, the shirtless the, thing is when not a, that big a deal. when a man in nothing but grimy early 1900s underpants walks up to you grabs you by the shoulder shakes you and asks you if you fear the hereafter that's not a normal day mike i hope he had one of the <laughs> yes, I mean, well that up. depends am i wearing grimy 19th century underpants <laughs> what right now well, of course I am right we now. This, I'm talking it is strictly a comfort Because it's best to flip a coin scenario for me. <laughs> you can get them on Duluth Trading now. Oh, Jesus. So, yeah, finally after two months in Madagascar, Ross's well, that's the thing, too, is when, when you're dealing with, like, have you ever been the only sober person in a room full of people completely gacked out? I'm a bartender. I do it for a living. Well, now you know what it's like to be Ross's Fenske. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I get it. Else That's is... why I understand. That's why I don't yeah. have binoculars at work, because I broke them all. Or mm. being the only adult in a room full of toddlers. I mean, Rosasvensky mm. is a mixture of bartender and, and daycare teacher. Yeah. I work front of house in a restaurant. I know what yeah. it's like to be surrounded by toddlers. <laughs> I'm, giving yeah, you, I'm giving you a bunch of binoculars for your, <laughs> for your birthday now. Local bartender fired after hurling binocular <laughs> sets. Binoculars. And that's, uh, yeah, I forgot we haven't referenced that in this episode. Go back to the previous episode to find out uh, what Rosasvensky liked to do uh, to ships that he was mad at. He would go out onto the bridge wings and hurl his binocular sets in the direction of the, uh, of, of the ship offending question, ship, yeah. of the offending vessel uh, or crew. And uh, his, his flagship at the beginning of the trip had been loaded with extra crates of binoculars because he had established this pattern of behavior. So, yeah, so they finally weighed anchor and made their way into the Indian Ocean towards their target. Now, south of Sri Lanka, the fleet met up with the transport ship uh, Gorchitkov, 
which it, I'm, I'm happy I'm just as accurate as I am with these Russian names, uh, which raised flagging morale as it was meant to be carrying much overdue mail from home. It was indeed carrying mail. The mail it had collected from the fleet in Madagascar some weeks previous. The uh, Gorchakov had become so hopelessly lost trying to make her way home that she ended up going in the wrong direction and had blundered back into her host fleet purely by accident. Purely by accident in the Indian Ocean is actually a... Yeah. yeah. One hell of a thing. Because, because like, mm-hmm. these ships look big when we're close to them, but in the context of the entire fucking Indian Ocean, not very big. Well, in, in, in a lot of people misunderstand it. The Indian Ocean, because when you when you push the map out and you push the global map out, it, it looks like the little tiny one. It's one of the biggest. Yeah. The distance between Madagascar and Australia is about five thousand miles. Yeah, it's it's pretty long. Yes. Yeah, it's it's big. It's big. <laughs> so Rossesvenski decided that taking a different tack may be necessary and changed his system in such a way so that any ship that strayed or screwed up its orders was to take station directly astern of the flagship, the Kinas Suvorov, where Rosasvensky would stand on the fantail and spend hours on end berating and swearing at the air and ship's officers through a megaphone. I think we referenced this in a... You might have referenced this, Mike, yes. in the previous episode. Now, finally, on May 3rd, 1905, Rosasvensky had had enough and sent off a message with a dispatch boat to Tsar Nicholas II tending his resignation. By the time the message was received in St. Petersburg, however, the fateful battle was only a day away, and by the time the Tsar's response was able to get back to Rosasvensky, the matter had been concluded, as we will soon discuss. The, the, Tsar... the post was delayed because it was sent by Pony Express, and then for like four or five hours, they couldn't find a horse. They didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> it comes Jesus. out smoking. <laughs> so It took the Trans-Siberian Railway the wrong direction. Yeah. Now, the... The Tsar, no great knower of the realities of naval operations, had decided that Rosensvensky was doing a superb job and firmly rejected the offer of resignation. On uh, May 11th, 1905, a final group of additional vessels, a small squadron of old, slow reserve battleships known as the 3rd Pacific Squadron and amongst Rosensvensky's staff as the Self-Sinking Squadron and among Rosensvensky himself as a, quote, archaeological collection of naval architecture, under uh, Rear Admiral Nikolai Nabogatov, rendezvoused with Rosensvetsky at Camran Bay off of what is now Vietnam. This, uh, this squadron had made surprisingly good time, considering that they'd transited the Suez Canal and had cut out the whole going-all-the-way-around-Africa part. They'd gone through the canal on high alert, with all gunners constantly at their stations, just in case, I don't know, the Japanese had developed some kind of torpedo-launching camel? Fuck knows, I don't know. Actually, I think the Japanese were able to get pretty close to that area. Well, they, they had the well, they had the capability, but they didn't have the means because they they they're they're a rising naval power, but all most of their capable forces that could engage the Russian fleet are still locked up, protecting the Japanese home islands and keeping uh, the port of Vladivostok bottled up. But I would I, the question I would have is that 120 years ago. Mm-hmm. Are in, uh, the the intelligence, particularly obviously, the naval air, uh, the the Russian military was not known for its uh, competence at no. this point. Uh, the, the the intelligence would have you think, okay, if they're capable, then they must be doing it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, they had the capability, but they didn't have the tactical means at the time. Right. So, even so, uh, they the uh, 3rd Pacific Squadron had caused yet another massive stink for the Russian diplomatic corps to deal with as many hundreds of merchant ships were backed up behind them in a gigantic seaborne traffic jam trying to go through the canal, their horns blaring for hours on end in frustration with the old Russian battle wagons. Now, Razasvensky wasn't a fan of Nabogatov, believing him inept and part of the uh, social-climbing, aristocratic, privileged set who populated so much of the upper uh, Russian command system. And, uh, and he thought that the crappy second-rate ships that Nabogatov had sailed with would do more to hinder the 2nd Pacific Squadron's operations than help them. As such, he neglected to share his strategy in routing with Nabogatov, basically saying, follow me and try to keep up. He even failed to inform Nabogatov when Rear Admiral Baron Dmitry von Folkersom, Rosensvensky's second-in-command from the beginning, died of cancer on the 24th of May, three days before the Russian and Japanese fleets met. Rosensvetsky kept von Folkersom's flag flying from his former vessel, mostly to preserve morale as battle became certain, but this also meant that Nabogatov was second in command of the uh, whole fleet now, and he didn't know. <laughs> That's a, uh, What we have here is a failure to communicate. I mean, that is... I mean, so the guy... So if something happens to Rosensvetsky's ship... Nabokatov's in command. He's supposed to assume command of the entire fleet. He thinks that there's still another guy in place. I mean, yeah, it's uh. so with the arrival of Nabokatov's squadron of old clunkers, the reinforcement fleet was finally complete, numbering 48 vessels, including 11 battleships, eight cruisers, nine destroyers, and a host of support ships. It was time to take the Second Pacific Squadron to war, like actual war. <laughs> with actual torpedo boats this time, not made-up ones in the Baltic. This is going to go great. Yeah, it's going to go really well. So Rosensvetsky had a choice between three possible routes to approach Vladivostok and rendezvous with the Russian ships uh, housed there. He had the the Tsushima Strait between the Korean Peninsula and the Japanese home islands, the Sugaru Strait between the main Japanese island of Honshu and the northern island of Hokkaido, and and the Soya Strait between Hokkaido and the disputed northern island of Sakhalin. Rosvensky, having been through everything he'd had to deal with over the last seven months, chose the shortest and most direct route through the Tsushima Strait. Unfortunately, the Japanese also guessed that this would be the route the Russian fleet would take. First contact was made at about 2.45 in the morning local time on the 27th of May, 1905. The night was covered with thick fog, and the Japanese armed merchant cruiser Shinano Maru spotted three lights in the distance and closed to investigate. Now, those lights belonged to the unarmed Russian hospital ship Orel, which was required by the international rules of war at the time to keep her lights burning. Around 4.30 a.m., the Shinano Maru closed with the Orel, whose crew decided that this couldn't possibly be anything other than one of the Russian ships sailing south out of Vladivostok to meet Rosensvetsky's fleet. And there was no chance that she was a Japanese vessel. And so the Orel helpfully signaled to the Shinano Maru that the entire Russian relief fleet was behind her. How far they were behind her, what bearing they were heading in, and how many of what types of ships the force contained. Uh, Simply signaling back, acknowledged, continue on current bearing, the Shinano immediately jumped on her wireless set and signaled back to the main Japanese fleet everything she had just learned. The main Japanese fleet was ready to sail at a moment's notice, and within less than 12 hours, battle would be joined. Now, to sum up what happened at the Battle of Tsushima, a Japanese fleet under Admiral uh, Heichiro Togo 
consisting of five battleships, 23 cruisers, and 36 destroyers and torpedo boats, met the Russian fleet in the Tsushima Strait. At about 2 in the afternoon on the 27th of May, Togo's ships formed a battle line and caught sight of Rasazvetsky's fleet, and both formations opened fire simultaneously at the unprecedented range of over 9,000 yards, about 5.5 miles. Togo managed to turn his battle line, and as the Russians advanced in line ahead, seeming like they wanted to charge in and split the Japanese in uh, line in close combat, uh, close range combat, like Nelson did at Trafalgar, right. Togo managed to cross the Russians' T. This means that his ships formed the top of a T shape and were able to fire, and were able to all fire heavy broadsides and concentrate on one target at a time, while the Russians could only fire with their forward turrets. The rest of the battle was pretty much a foregone conclusion. The Japanese had a long list of advantages. Now, while Rosensvetsky wasn't an inept tactical commander, Togo was just better and had the benefit of having fought and won multiple battles against the Russian fleet. In addition, the Japanese officer corps was better trained and relied on merit and skill rather than social rank and a place within the aristocracy to gain their commands. Plus, the Japanese had the added benefit of being better acquainted with the new technology of wireless telegraphy or the use of radio signals to confer orders through Morse code. There's, uh, they had sets within every ship, which had better range and clarity and were more reliable in bad weather and rough seas. Where the Russians had only installed sets on some of their ships, and these sets were finicky and had the habit of failing to receive broadcast signals in anything more than a flat calm. In addition, the Japanese crews were more experienced, better rested, better fed, and received more consistent and useful training. Their crews had also benefited from a unity of purpose and devotion to country and emperor, giving the Japanese a much better morale and greater fighting spirit and esprit de corps than their Russian counterparts, without any of the uh, revolutionary elements within a fleet uh, at work trying to undermine the Tsarist regime at sea. Then there was the difference in the quality of ships. Generally speaking, the Japanese fleet just had better vessels. They were on average about a decade newer than their Russian counterparts. They had better range-finding equipment, better guns, stronger and lighter armor, and while most of the Russian ships had been home-built or made in French shipyards, most of the Japanese fleet had been constructed by the best military shipbuilders in the world at the time. Their ally, the British. Uh, the French, also, it's worth noting, weren't bad at building warships. They just weren't great at it, and there were some seriously questionable designs that came out of French shipyards at the end of the 19th century. And while the Russians outnumbered the Japanese in terms of battleships, 11 to 5, the Japanese ships were all pretty new and pretty much state-of-the-art, while the Russians only had four new battleships. Um, the rest were much either much older and less capable, or were smaller coastal defense-type battleships with thinner armor and smaller guns. Japanese ships were also faster, capable of sustaining 16 knots, while the Russians could only do 14 knots in small bursts. Two or three knots may not sound like much, but when that's a 25% advantage in speed, that makes a big difference. Um, part of this reason was that the Japanese ships had clean bottoms, but uh, as one would assume, the Japanese sailors did as well. They're very disciplined. <laughs> but the long months... Yeah, of... and they weren't gated out on opium. Yeah, well, that, yeah. And <laughs> or, actual gators. Or, yeah, yeah, and actual just, gators. <laughs> or, or spent too much time chasing monkeys. Um, no, but the long months at sea and the 18,000-mile journey the Russian fleet undertook meant the bottoms of their ships had been heavily fouled with various sorts of accreted marine life. You mean they didn't careen them in Madagascar? Uh, no, they shockingly neglected to do that. <laughs> um, there was one ship, I believe, it was the Kamchatka. I think that, no, I'm just thinking this fleet would have tried. Yeah. Yeah, they were just super tired the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these Madagascar cigarettes. Man, I just nuts. want to take another nap, man. <laughs> 
You it's, tr- like the, it's like the especially weird part of the movie Platoon. <laughs> it's just that scene <laughs> yeah, over and yeah, over exactly. again. Exactly. <laughs> you got to try these Madagascar cigarettes, bro. You got to get hip with it, man. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, what, there was one ship, I believe it was the Kamchatka, who her bottom had managed to, uh, while in Madagascar, had managed to acquire a whole colony of sea sponges. Yeah, it was completely oh, covered in sponges, which slowed <laughs> it, it lost two full knots. Right. So now it's ten yeah. knots. And it wasn't a fast ship to begin no, with. Yeah. Right. It lost a sixth of its speed. Because yeah. it was just sponges. It wasn't even, it wasn't right. even barnacles. It's just sponges. <laughs> I don't know why sponges is so much funnier, but it's definitely funnier. It's going to be nice and soft if you run aground, but... Well, it, it, would sink it, it, it would sink. It would just yeah. bounce right back up. <laughs> Bring them on board. Make make Krabby Patties. Ooh, now we're talking. <laughs> Problem is, you bring her into a small cove. The tide goes out. The water she's in just gets sucked up into the sponges. Now it's dry. And she's on the bottom. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just playing my SpongeBob ukulele over here. I, I, I hate that. I hate it. So, um, also in addition, the particular needs of the long journey uh, that we mentioned about fueling and keeping all that extra coal on board and uh, poor maintenance and cleaning discipline had left the Russian ships covered in a layer of flammable coal dust that had a nice habit of igniting wherever, whenever an enemy shell hit, causing more fires than would normally result from being hit by those types of shells. Like, we, I believe, Chris, you called them uh, just a bunch of fuel air bombs. Yes, exactly. Well, and in, 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 in Chris mentioned in the last episode, that is the greatest fear of any sailor is fire. anywhere. It's fire, fire and sea. It's the worst. It's... You can you can survive an explosion, you can survive a hole, you can survive water coming on board. You can't survive fire, Mm-mm. especially not if it gets to the magazine. Right? Yeah, you're taking a little, you're taking a well, ride up in the yeah, sky very yeah. quickly at a very high velocity. Well, they, which which ship was it? They sank in eleven minutes. Uh, the oh, I can't remember which one. Anyway. There was a, there was a ship that sank in eleven minutes, the yeah. fastest recorded, s- and it was because fire in a magazine. Yeah, um, I believe it was the. Ah, I'm not going to waste any time looking at this. Oh, uh, well, it was the. Um, I believe it was the uh, uh, Oslava, yeah. which uh, yeah, it hit had a had a magazine hit and just detonated, yeah. and the whole front of the ship fell off. It broke the yeah. ship in half. Um, now, in addition, the Russian ships tended to have more furniture and uh, accents that were made of wood. Uh, a lot of it purely decorative. This also happened to be nice and flammable, especially when it's impregnated with coal dust. Uh, now, as the two battle lines began slugging it, uh, slugging it out, both sides began to score hits on the enemy. But soon, the Japanese crossing of the T, plus all the other advantages I mentioned, began to tell. Uh, one by one, the ships at the head of the Russian column... The fleet's newest and most capable battleships were smashed to burning scrap metal. Rosasvensky was knocked unconscious by a flying shell fragment relatively early in the battle and had to be evacuated from his flagship. Several of the Russian capital ships were left in a sinking condition, and most of the other ships suffered significant damage. The fleet turned away and ran south to reorganize, but while they were attempting to get back into fighting order and make repairs, as night fell, the Japanese torpedo boats that had so long been feared since they left Estonia... Seven and a half months earlier, but had never encountered, finally got in amongst the fleet. The Russian fleet was thrown into more chaos as their ships were hit with torpedoes, harassed by gunfire, hit by rounds, fired by their own ships. Again, this time in an actual fight, there's actual enemies to destroy and you're still pumping rounds into each other. 
and they were hit by mines sewed by the Japanese light ships. Uh, several of the Russian ships that scattered ran into larger Japanese ships on the periphery of the combat and were blown out of the water. Come sunrise, the sad remnants of the Russian fleet realized that they were out of ammunition, damaged, outnumbered, outranged, outgunned, and surrounded. With Rosetsvensky wounded and evacuated from his flagship, command of the fleet had fallen to Rear Admiral Nabogatov, and by this time one assumes he'd figured out that he was actually second in command, and he surrendered the remaining parts of the fleet in his control. In the aftermath of the 48 warships and auxiliaries in the Russian fleet, 21 of them would be sunk and 13 captured. This included all the Russian battleships, six of the nine destroyers, and most of the cruisers. Only three ships, a light cruiser and two destroyers, escaped to make it back to Vladivostok, and several others scattered and were later interned by in neutral ports in Shanghai, the Philippines, or in the case of the armed transport Anadir, running all the way back to Madagascar without stopping, taking down her Russian colors and acting as a pirate to steal coal from the bunkers of merchant vessels in order to make it back without stopping adding to the laundry list of international incidents already caused by the squadron ships. The Kamchatka had finally proven during the course of the battle that it could be of use to the Russian fleet by absorbing Japanese shellfire that could have been directed elsewhere. But after taking on water and having her engines knocked out, as her crew abandoned ship, she continued to be an absolute fucker and decided to be a detriment to the Russians one last time. As soon as the lifeboats had been lowered into the water, the Kamchatka went bow up and sank almost instantaneously, pulling, <laughs> pulling the lifeboats down into the sea along with her. And all but three of her crew were taken down as a last wow. great fuck you to the entire nautical world. So much for the sponges. Yeah. Mm. Russian personnel losses totaled 4,380 killed and over 5,900 men captured. Japanese losses were three small torpedo boats, the total tonnage of which was less than half half that of the smallest Russian cruiser that, uh, that was lost. Their personnel losses were 117 men killed and 580 injured. The wounded Admiral Rosasvensky was captured on the, on the destroyer Bedovoy and taken to a hospital in Yokohama, where he was visited by Admiral Togo and greeted warmly as a valiant but defeated adversary. He would spend a short captivity in the company of many Japanese officers, Togo included, and spent most nights dining with them. Until his death in 1909, he would continue correspondence with the man who had defeated him, but who he still considered to be a friend. Now, Rosetsvetsky would be court-martialed in 1906 for the defeat at Tsushima, and though he was unconscious for most of the battle, he accepted full responsibility for the result. The courts found him not guilty of dereliction of duty, and he was discharged from naval service, but they did sentence Vice Admiral Nabogatov and all the surviving captains of the ships that didn't make it back to Vladivostok to death by firing squad. The Tsar, however, fearing public backlash if the sentences were carried out, reacted with a mix of pardons and commutations of some of the sentences to very short prison terms. Much like the Battle of Tsushima, the war would end in a complete victory for Japan and the utter humiliation of Russia and the Tsar. A peace would be mediated in September of 1905 by U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt, but it was clear that the balance of power in East Asia had shifted. And while Japan was now very much a nation on the ascent, Russia would begin a long slide towards revolution, world war, and ultimate disaster and doom for the Tsar. Now, exact numbers have never been available, but it's estimated that the war resulted in 150 to 200,000 dead on both sides combined, 
and nearly 400,000 wounded. Now, what was learned from the long odyssey of the 2nd Pacific Squadron and its later annihilation would be applied by all the navies of the major world powers as a naval arms race began heating up and we began to see the emergence of dreadnought battleships, battlecruisers, submarines, and a shift from the dependence on coal to power the great fleets to oil. The great distances at which lines of massive warships can now reach out and blast each other or their to scrap would be emphasized in future battles with names like Coronel, Jutland, the North Cape, and Surigao Strait. But no matter how much the events of this story would go on to affect naval operations in the future, no one since has sailed quite so far as the Second Pacific Squadron, and no one since has made quite so big of an amusing clusterfuck of the whole thing. And that, gentlemen, is the story of the Russian 2nd Pacific Squadron. I mean, it was 18,000 miles just to get your shit pushed in. Seven and a half months. Yeah. yeah. And at the end of it, you get absolutely blown out of the water in... I mean, it's... it's and, it, well, it's the first Persian Gulf War of naval battles. It is so incredibly one-sided. And if you're one of these captains, you put up with this crap for seven and a half months. You come home. You face a courts martial. And you're sentenced to death by firing squad. Mm-hmm. Because of it's, and it's entirely because of the czars. Right. Like everything they did, it was it was the court that made all the decisions. Yep, right. they did all of it. Yeah, that's the thing is you're you've basically been set up to fail from the beginning. I mean, if you're Rosasvetsky, you're you're set up. There's barring some kind of it would take such an immense fluke for him to end up winning that battle. Like, you would have to have, like, magazine detonations on three of the Japanese capital ships in rapid succession right. or something to turn the tide. It, it just, they had the, you know, the Japanese had the initiative, they had the skill, they had the ships, they had absolutely every advantage. One of the things that you didn't mention, they, they're fighting in their own backyard. That, yes, They that had home field advantage. They absolutely did. Yeah, they, they don't have to worry about an 18,000-mile supply line. Yeah, right. they're fighting less than 100 miles off the coast of Japan. And they know the land. Or, well, they know the water. They, yeah. they, well, the, the, yeah, the, the, the land. The, 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 yeah, the, the bottom. Yeah, the layout. <laughs> Bikini bottom. <laughs> so it's... <laughs> Chris, I'm going to throw my binoculars at you. I didn't know that your trigger thing was the ukulele. Now... I... Just SpongeBob ukulele. Just that one? Well, I know that I am a little sick of, of girls going, I'm, I'm, I'm quirky. Uh, I'm yeah. a white girl playing the ukulele. When, Look at me. When bangs and a septum piercing just won't do it. You gotta, it the holy trinity is adding the ukulele. Well, I mean, bangs and septum piercings have been part of a trend in my dating history. But, mm. eh, you know, I've, I've managed to avoid many ukulele players, thankfully. However... I mean, granted, it's, you it's said been, many, not all. I mean, yeah. it's, look, also, I so mean, now we just figured it out. <laughs> exactly. Granted, okay, granted, quarantine has changed things. Like, if you're if you're cute and you play the ukulele, you know what? Give me a call. I'm, I'll I'll deal with it. I'll adjust. We all make sacrifices. Christ, I didn't care. I don't care if you're a dude and played ukulele. It was a long, it was dude. a long, difficult quarantine. <laughs> yeah, and, and, Any port in the storm. <laughs> yeah, man. When Kyle, I just, I man, just when Kyle comes back. <laughs> I, I just can't believe ukulele is where you to draw play the, the line. Ukulele or else it gets the hose again. Hope everyone stayed. Hope everyone stayed healthy because when Kyle's back for for Dan Sickles, he's getting kissed on the mouth. He's he was missed. <laughs> he was missed in this series. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that's well, that's the thing too is when you are the Japanese, you're sailing a, what a, maybe a couple hundred miles out of your home base, right? And your opponents have sailed ninety times further. 
Yeah. And Over. We're also talking about the Japanese, who are a seafaring people. Mm-hmm. Japan is it's an island nation. Like these are a seafaring people. They're yeah. very good at navigating the waters in and around Japan. So. Well, and and also, I mean, they were just very very good at modern naval tactics as well. And they also had much more modern I mean, can, modern naval equipment at the time because the second fleet was old it was yeah. it was all the old stuff. Well, no, it was mostly the and and the Japanese had some home-built ships, but it was mostly the Brits. Mm-hmm. Right. Who built theirs. And the Brits, I mean, man, there was a reason that Britannia ruled the waves. Yeah, and it, continued it, it to wasn't, do so it until it wasn't eating baked beans for breakfast. Well, and it continued to do so until the Second World War when we started churning out Essex class carriers like chocolate bars. Uh, yeah, and it was just because we had the industrial <laughs> so might se- to do it. Yeah, we're, we're essentially talking about the better part of five hundred years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and it's that's why the sun well, didn't and, set on the empire. Yeah. Right, but yeah, but the Japanese also went from completely isolated to one of the best maritime powers in the world in fifty years, and that is amazing. Over the course of, I mean, once once the Meiji Restoration mm-hmm. kicked in and they started really bringing in the European powers to teach them how to fight as a modern military. And uh, you, you want to know how to fight as a modern Navy? You bring in the British. Exactly. I mean, they, they relied on the French for a while, and they realized that the, the French tactics, what's, what's known as the, I won't go into it now, but it's known as the je ne which means you don't means fight with. flag. It, well, it means, you, <laughs> it means you rely on smaller cruisers and destroyers as the centerpiece of your fleet. But then the British went, nope, battleships. And, then... and they, they were right. They were right. Uh, and the 2nd Pacific Squadron paid the price. I mean, they got... They didn't just get defeated and turned back. They got wiped out. Right. Is, it, is it true that French battleships have the bridge facing aft? I, <laughs> <laughs> okay, we, we've gotten into arguments before over the fact that the, the, the French aren't deserving of the cheese-eating surrender monkeys. It's just so much fun to call them that. Uh, no, right. I mean, exactly. Exactly. And, and I assume we, we carry a, but yes, a but higher yes, Mike, caliber much, of listeners. But yes, Mike, much like their tanks had one forward gear and eight reverse. <laughs> it's, no, it's so, yeah, so it's, that's the thing is like, the whole thing is funny, but the whole thing is incredibly tragic because you know that all, they go through all of this bullshit just to sail to their destruction. Yeah, it's. I mean, I've heard a lot of people refer to this as the, the, the voyage of the damned, yes. which is appropriate. And there are very few cases where that's actually appropriate. That's more of a superstitious type of yeah, I mean, thing among you. You maybe have sailors. like Operation Tengo, you know, the last voyage of the Yamato. The, 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 the career of the, you know, the, um, the Russian submarine Kursk. Mm-hmm. Um, the, yeah. uh, the, uh, was it, hey, was it, um, was it K-19? K-19 was yeah. that, it was the same way he had, had several. Um, yeah, those, I mean, Yes, there They're are there squareless. are damned ships, yeah. but yeah. this was a true voyage of the damned. Yeah, they were on a suicide mission. They just didn't know it. Right. Nobody they just nobody cued them in. Uh, they might have known it. They might have known it. Like I said, like everybody knew all these decisions were poor. Yeah. Well, that's that, well, that is a good point. Uh, that, that that is a good point. I well, also think I also think maybe the upper echelon. Note. I mean, well, your average guy shoveling coal in the engine yeah, no, room. That's a little bit what different. we're also leaving out is a. A, a chronic problem of the European powers to underestimate the Japanese, and I think part of it is based in in part of it's based in racism. Um, oh, it's absolutely based in racism. Yeah, and and the other well, the other part of it, there's also a part of it that is based in the fact that they are still a newer yeah. power, and you and you operate under the assumption that somebody who's been operating as a modern navy for only a few decades 
is not going to be completely dominant over a Navy that's existed for hundreds of years. Well, read some of the when, – when Japan opened up, read some of the writings of the Americans and British sailors who had, had gone into these ports and things, and they were savage. That They were savages that, just like every other savage in colonial politics, that needed to be subjugated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, they're all, obviously, and we're talking about less than 300 years ago. And well, then by 1905, they're yeah. going, savages, are we? Yeah. yeah. We're going to show you savages. Yeah. It definitely, I mean, it woke and Europe up. It really, the, the Japanese victory in the Russo-Japanese War woke Europe up. And they went, oh, boy, okay, we're not the only players, we're not the dominant players in the East anymore. They went, this is not a, this is no longer purely a European playground. So yeah, it. I mean, it. This this voyage, this battle, and the war, all combined to really change the state of play in the Pacific. And you know, we wouldn't without the Russo-Japanese War and the Battle of Tsushima, we wouldn't have the way things played out in the First World War, and we wouldn't have the way things played out in the Second World War, leading to the modern world. It's fascinating to think about. Yeah, this yeah. is this is a very isolated incident, but the Russo-Japanese War is it, it set the table for mm-hmm. the next two major global conflicts. Well, and as we referenced in the last episode, go back and listen to the first episode. If you're listening to the second part of a two-part series, go back and listen to episode one. You fool. Yeah, you're already in right. the end. What exactly. the, what, I mean, we're not going to tell yet? you how you yeah. what what to do. If you want to be crazy, be crazy. But yeah, I mean, it stands the reason to listen to part one, and it gives you a uh, part one will also give you a lot more background about the war that was being fought. No snakes in that one, though. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, and that's the thing is we, we talked about how the Russo-Japanese war was also like a dress rehearsal for World War One, in terms of modern battleship fleets, in terms of technology, like long range, accurate artillery, machine guns, armored cars, all of that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is really, I think a, a kind of classic, almost medieval epic journey, a quest on the way to a great big wake-up call that you're still a part of the modern world. And yeah. that's what makes it so interesting. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, gentlemen, thank you, uh, thank you, Mike, for all, your, uh, for all your input, drawing on your Navy experiences. My vast knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That thank was sarcasm, people. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Kyle, for staying quiet in the basement. Um, Shut the hell up down there. <laughs> uh Vinny, you should learn to be a little more like uh, a little more like Kyle. Um, That's what happens when you have your five-month-old yeah. dog running around the kitchen. <laughs> we just wrote so, the last one in. This yeah. one just took yeah. over. And uh, thank you, everybody out there, for listening. Um, Chris, if they uh, if people want to get in touch with us or find us on social media, how can they do that? If you'd like to find us on social media, we would love to hear from you. If you'd like to drop us an email at trrpod at gmail.com. If you fire off an email, let us know what you think. Uh, any constructive criticism, uh, any topics you might want to hear about, please feel free to let us know. Uh, if we screwed anything up, we'd love to hear from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Podcast TRR. You can follow us on Instagram at TRR Pod. You can find us on Facebook as well. Yep. And uh, if you like what we do, if you'd like to loan us, uh, lend us a little financial support, uh, you can go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod. For as little as a buck a month, you can financially support the podcast. Every cent we take in goes directly back into the show. It helps uh, purchase our sound equipment, uh, our software. It helps uh, pay to keep us on all the various platforms. And it helps to pay for the research materials that help to uh, bring... Uh, 
help us to bring you new content. Um, next, uh, speaking of Patreon, as per usual, we will probably be doing a Halloween special this year coming up at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. Almost certainly, we think we're probably going to do the Halloween special as a Patreon-only release. Correct. Because it kind of it's going to fit a little weirdly into the schedule of planned episodes. Speaking of planned episodes, next time we will have Mr. Michael Ornette along with his brother, Mr. James Ornette. Yes, if this is not the podcast of the damned. <laughs> oh, it has been for so long. Yeah, it You just got to be the admiral, man. Yeah, there was never yeah. a man of destiny quite like him. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's your mandate next time, and uh, you and Jim are going to be bringing us a two-part series on the story of Dan Sickles. Looking forward to it. Yeah, Absolutely looking forward well, to it. A lot of good stuff coming on that one. Definitely, so are we. Again, everybody, thank you for dealing with the little switcheroo in terms of topics as we deal with the uncertainties and vagaries of scheduling and everybody's health in the time of pandemic. And, uh, of course, on that front, uh, stay safe, stay smart, uh, socially distance, wear a mask, you know, use the podcast to help you uh, pass the time when you could be out partying. But you know what? The parties will happen again. We just got to wait. If you get rushed to the hospital, we hope it's just purely precautionary, mm-hmm. and that's why you took a helicopter and... Seven, hey, you, you want to know what I want? Go, go for a little drive around in a <laughs> mask in a hermetically sealed vehicle. I, I was telling you guys earlier. I was stationed. I, I was actually stationed at Bethesda. Yeah, this, this was a big sticking point for you, Mike. Okay. Now I, I, I notice I call it Bethesda Naval Hospital because it is not Walter Reed. Walter Reed was a a an army hospital that was closed down between the Rats and the Legionnaires. And they decided to try to take over the Navy's hospital and give it the grand name Walter Reed. So yeah, it was two facilities that ended say up that, getting folded into one, and they went with the Army name. Right, which for anybody with a sense of pride and naval naval tradition gets wouldn't irritated it, wouldn't, by wouldn't that. Wouldn't have happened in the British military. No, it would not have. Um, because for them, the Navy is the senior service. Now that that being said, here's what I don't get: we have a very we, I know where the helipad is at Bethesda. It's a very secure place. How is it that this particular president, because I've seen the president land at that helipad. He lands in the front yard, like three feet from the steps. It's very on brand. Mm. It's so impossibly on brand. Just saying, you know, I've, I've seen multiple presidents. I know where that helipad is. I've seen them land at that helipad for what checkups. You, what you watched happen Thanks. was just a hoax to downplay to leading from the front. Ah, <laughs> we are okay. now at the four D chess. We are now at the leading of the front era. Leading at the if, front era for the, the great warrior. I will say this about that hospital, though: if you ever have an opportunity um, to tour the grounds, if you have family that's Navy or retired military that has an opportunity to see the grounds of Bethesda, Maryland. It is an absolutely wonderful place. It is yeah, gorgeous. Um, it was, if you just need a couple days, just get some work done. Kick your feet up and get some work done. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Sign those blank sheets of paper repeatedly. Oh, my God. I, I, just re- I just figured it out. I just figured it out who the person is to most accurately – pair the Kamchatka to mm-hmm. but we will not speak his name <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but uh yeah everybody take it easy be well we'll see you next time for Dan Sickles don't be don't, hopefully don't hopefully. don't don't be don't be like the second Pacific squadron don't get lost don't shoot each other in the dark don't go after don't go after civilian vessels 
Um, Always mind your snake. Do do something. <laughs> and if you're going to talk about death, don't do it pantsless. <laughs> but do but do the one thing that they did manage to do. Of course, we all know what that is. They they knew how to hold fast. <laughs>